0: you. It's so fun for me to hear these sounds of family and people connecting. And and I just pray, God, as we open up your word today, that you would speak, that you would, as we celebrate a a passage that we talk about every single year, that you would open our eyes and ears to hear and plant something in us that will grow to transform us and change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Grab a seat. We are working our way through Lent, last Sunday of Lent, and we've been looking at passages in Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 21 today. We've been looking at passages in Matthew that have quotes that Matthew pulled from Isaiah. Uh, Since it's Palm Sunday, we're in Matthew 21 where Jesus rides on the donkey into Jerusalem. And, And the Isaiah quote that comes in that passage in verse 13 about my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations you may say, Jeff, you've already talked about that. You can't recycle sermons. We pay you to create new ones. <laughs> Some of you don't realize, don't, don't want me to, to create new ones either. But anyway, we, we've already kind of talked about that a few weeks ago. We focused on my house, what we called a House of Prayer for All Nations, with this idea of this God who welcomes people from all areas to His temple, c- to come to Him, right? Well, today I want to revisit the first part of that text, the ride into Jerusalem, and, and you've got to get the context, Passover is coming, you'll, you'll understand that a little bit if you come to our Holy Week events where we do the, the Seder on Thursday night, we'll understand a little more of the feeling that's going on in Jerusalem as this event happens, and there's this sense of expectation in the air. It was a common practice by the Romans to double and triple the imperial guard in Jerusalem for Passover Because it was a celebration of the time when the Jews had been held captive and they were set free. It was a time when Rome got nervous that there might be a rebellion. There constantly were rebellions around the Passover feast. So they would double up the number of the imperial guard there. And there's this sense of expectation in all the people every year as they come to Passover. Will this be the year that something happens? So we pick it up in Matthew 21. We'll read verses 1 to 17. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with a colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, On a colt, the foal of a donkey. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It's written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, Jesus replied. Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. Now what what I want you to see as you hear this text and as we read it and think about it is when Jesus says to the disciples, go get the donkey, this is what they've all been waiting for. This is the moment that they've been waiting for. Every year we come back to this story. It's a different gospel writer every year, but on Palm Sunday we always come back to this story of the palm branches, people waving, shouting Hosanna. Right. This is the text that we circle back to every year. But the people of Jesus' day had a lot of texts that they circled back to every year as well. The Passover texts, they had a lot of different ones. And one of the ones that, that, that stood out for them through what I'm, I'm calling years of longing for the Messiah to come, they had these texts they kept, and they would fire them up to think, oh, he's coming, it could come at any time. We need to be set free. And in these years of longing, this text that they would always come back to was one written 520 years before by the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah 9, nine. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And here they go, just before Jesus is planning to enter into Jerusalem, and he sends them for a donkey. Now, how many of you noticed he also sent them for a colt of a donkey? And how many of you noticed that they put blankets on two of them? And it says, and Jesus said on them. Did you notice that? Yeah, that's, I figured. That's why I'm trying to circumvent that process. Um, Because there's been a lot of ink spilled on this. Was it two donkeys or one donkey? Because the other gospel writers say one. And Matthew says two. Oh, my faith is shook now. I don't believe, I don't know if I believe anymore. Let me just say this. Um, I, I mean, you can perceive this any way you want. I'm hoping that something like this doesn't shake your... I'll tell you why I think Matthew talked about both of them. And I mean, conceivably, a donkey might be tied with its colt. And conceivably, they might go in together with the colt following along. And I mean, conceivably, Jesus could have sat on both of them. You know, I don't know if it's extra horsepower in his vehicle. I don't know what that would be, Right. But I think the reason Matthew talks about both of them so clearly is because the prophecy mentions the donkey and the colt. And Matthew wants it to be crystal clear in his readers' minds that this is what's happening. Now, did Jesus ride two? If, if that is a big struggle for you, wrestle with it. Was it two or one? But if your faith is hanging on whether it's two or one, you might want to hang your faith on something a little stronger. Than two or one donkeys. We can talk about that. I'm just saying Matthew's point in referring to both of them is because the prophecy refers to both of them, and that's what he's trying to do. There have been years of longing, and Matthew says, "Finally, the arrival of the King. He's showing up. He rides into town, and 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 it becomes this royal entry into Jerusalem." the people that line the street on the way in. Remember, we talked about last week, who are these people that have come around him and who are following him? It's the the poor and the weak and the lame and the blind. It's the outcast of society, many of them. And they line the streets as he come in and they, they shout Hosanna, they wave palm branches. That palm branches were the national symbol for their people. Just imagine, this is a horrible thing for me, but I love this analogy when it came to my head. Imagine that the United States conquered Canada. Just imagine. I know, Don't, don't no political commentary. Just imagine it happened. Imagine that, they, that we're, we're, make America great again meant expanding it north. Okay? Let's imagine that happened. And we were totally controlled by the American government. And all of a sudden, there was this guy that was talking about a new kingdom, a new nation. And, and on July 1st, Canada Day, he decides that he's going to drive right into downtown Vancouver. And the people get so excited that they all grab maple leaves. (laughs) And they start waving maple leaves, right? Just imagine that event. What, What is whoever is president of the United States at that point going to interpret that as? Rebellion. Rebellion. The Canadians have finally stopped saying sorry, and they're trying to kick us out. <laughs> that's what they're going to say. That's what's happening here, right? They're waving palm branches, and they're, they're saying, uh, <clears throat> what, what do they say? Here, blessed the son of David. Whoa, that's the king. The king's coming. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the God-chosen king coming in. And there's another word they say. You sang it this morning. Hosanna. Hosanna. We sing it lots, but it's one of those words, I think, that we don't really know what it means, right? In the the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, what they say is almost a direct quote from Psalm 118, 25 and 26. In, In Greek, it says, Lord, Hosanna, at the beginning of that. Lord, save us, Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, that word Hosanna that they're shouting literally means, save us now. Save us now. They're waving palm branches. They're laying down cloaks so they can have a royal carpet. They're calling him the son of David. And they're shouting, save us now. They've waited for years for the king to come. And here he is. And they wanted to be saved. Now, what does that mean? What did being saved mean to these people? It meant different things to all of them. For some of them, it meant freedom from Roman oppression. For some of them, it meant food. We could eat again. For some of them, it meant a reestablishment and a, a renewal of their religious practices of freedom to worship God completely in the way they want. For others, it meant economic freedom. They didn't have to pay taxes. Salvation meant a million different things, but they're all shouting, save us now. They wanted to be saved. And we want that too. We want things to get better. We want the broken world to be made new. We want our weaknesses to be strengthened. We want our failures to be erased. Anybody want those kind of things? Do you wish the mistakes you made this past week were just gone? I do. We say Hosanna too. It means a lot of different things. God save me now. But we say the same thing. We want the king to come. And Lent, one of the things I like about Lent is it forces you to that place. If you really go through the process of Lent where you're thinking about your own life and reflecting and repenting and, and, and asking God to show you what he wants to clean out of your habits and your life, when you, after you spend six weeks doing that, you get to the point where you're like, Hosanna, <laughs> please, I need some help. I want the king to come. Save us now. And so we lie in the streets today, we, we want to welcome the king to come. And for us, just like them, when he comes, it takes a while to come to grips with the reality of regime change. Now, I'm not using American analogies for any particular purpose, it's just the water I swam in my whole life. That's a phrase that came up, especially during the George Bush years of, of a military strategy of going in and changing the regime in another place. And they want the king to come, and we want the king to come to us. But I want you to see that in this text, there's also a struggle with the reality of regime change. We want someone to come and make it all better. Jesus, for us, maybe not two donkeys, but he's riding out on a white horse. He's our deliverer. He's going he's to make me feel better. He's going he's to fulfill my, mean, my quest for meaning and, and purpose. But what we see in the scripture is that when Jesus comes, he did some things that the people did not expect him to do. When you ask for a king, a king is what you get. Let me say that again. When you ask for a king, a a king is what you get. He was the king and he was coming. But the surprise for many was that the challenge starts at home. The challenge of having a king. Starts at home. Where did he go first, according to the text? Well, he went to the temple. Well, that makes sense, right? He's the coming king. He's going he's to sit on David's throne. It makes sense that he would go and he would offer a sacrifice, or he would, he would do something that's going to you know, make a vow to, to Yahweh. Something at the temple makes sense, right? That he would go there, but that's not what he does, does he? Look at verse 12. Jesus entered the temple area. He drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It's written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. I mean, he's coming to rid the place of the Romans, right? Isn't that why the king's coming? He's trying to make our life better. And why would he go mess up what we have of our life? Why would that be the first thing he would do? I've got a perfect sermon illustration for this. And Naya, where's Naya? Naya's going to come help me. I love Naya, because you know what? I said, Naya, I need some help with the sermon illustration. Will you help? And she said, yes. She didn't say like you would have said, what is it? <laughs> so I promise not to embarrass you. But I have, I, have, uh, I have this little basket of five balls. One, two, three, four, five. Right? Now, I want you to hold this, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to... This illustration is very important. It's important that there's five balls in this bucket but I, I also get very animated in this illustration, and one of them may pop out, okay. okay? So if one pops out, your job is to pick it up in your basket, bring it back, and, and put it in the bucket again, okay? In fact, I'll, I'll bring the bucket here and when I want you to refill it, okay? You got, isn't she a good volunteer? Give Naya a hand, right? Okay, so, so the reality is that, oh, Naya, I need five balls in the bucket, come on. Can you help me out here, please? Thank you, Naya. It's good I had her up here, I did, yeah. Thank you. All right, so the, the, the point of this illustration is... Oh, Naya, I need five balls in the bucket. To, I've got this really good illustration, but I need to use these five balls. Okay, let me ask you something, Naya. Would you like to do something different? Would you, do you think I'm... Is there a problem here? Yes, there's what? a hole in the bucket. There's a hole in the bucket. No, the problem is you're not helping me enough with the illustration. I really want five balls to stay in here, so if you could just help me. Okay. Now, now I hope you're seeing. Thank you, Naya, very much. Everybody, give Naya a big hand. You can leave the that's good. Leave the other one. It's down there on the floor. That's all right. Thank you. The illustration was that was the illustration, right? But I had in the middle of it, I have two choices. Naya, you're blowing my illustration. I I just want to keep these balls in the bucket. But the problem wasn't Naya, was it? She was actually very good. The problem was my bucket has a hole in the bottom of it. And and very often, when we want a king to come, we see the problem as something out there that needs to be fixed. We have this hole in our bucket, and we keep saying, come on, it's the Romans, that's the problem. You've come to deal with that, why would you start at home? You see, this king, when he comes, his plans for his people are more of a rebuild than a renovation. He's not just fixing them up. We want a king to fix our problems for us. Jesus, come in here, make my life better. Lead me to a fulfilling life. And what Jesus does is the first place he heads is right to us, to our hearts. Because he's not renovating. He's not fixing something up. He's trying to make us into something totally, completely new. Not like a Reno. More like a total rebuild. Soren Kierkegaard said, God creates everything out of nothing. We see that. He creates out of nothing. And everything which God is to use, he first reduces to nothing. When the king comes into our life, very often he starts by dismantling all these things that we've built up to protect ourselves. He starts at home. Just like Jesus starts by going to the temple. And he alludes in this destruction that he does in the temple, this turning over tables, he alludes to to something. And that's where the quote from Isaiah comes in. My house will be called a house of prayer. He, He says, what I'm doing here is a return to the original intention. God's always had a plan for his people. He's always wanted the Jewish people and the temple to be a light for the nation so that people could come and know God. And what they've done is they've built up their own kind of little religious system that's all about them. And he says, I'm, gonna, I'm coming, I'm the king, yes, I am who you think I am, and I'm in charge now, and I'm going to start by returning you to the original intention that I had for you. Like that, the Isaiah quote. He's talking about all the nations in Isaiah 56, 7, and he says, These I will bring to my holy mountain. I will give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The temple was going to be a place where the whole world could come and meet God. And yet the Jews had missed that. It had become their little religious shopping mall. And when the king shows up, he begins to make clear that what he wants to do in their life, and in my life, and in your life, is not just tweak things. He wants to return us to an original intention that God had for us. He wants to remake us. And part of that includes something I call reordered power structures. What does that phrase mean? This king is going to turn things on its head. What everyone thinks is power is going to be brought into question. Now, this shouldn't uh, surprise us. Really, it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus does this kind of thing because Mary, when she was pregnant, sang this song. Do you remember the Mary song back to Luke chapter 1, right? Luke 1, she's talking about God and she says, He has performed mighty deeds with His arms. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but He has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but He's sent the rich away empty. He's, he's changing the way the world works. And we see that in this text. We talked about it a few weeks ago. The blind and the lame who are at the temple, the outcasts, the social bottom feeders from what the, the people would have seen are the ones that are welcomed in and healed and blessed. Right? The children are jumping around everywhere actually preaching the good news. Right? They're the ones saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The children are doing that in the temple. The lowly, the outcast, they take center stage, and the powerful, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they're the ones that are upset. They're the ones that are feeling pushed out. They're the ones who are feeling out of control. And I, I just love Jesus so much, because you know what? <laughs> they say, do you hear, Jesus, what these kids are saying? And you can just hear it in their voice. Do you hear what they're saying? And he's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, haven't you guys ever read that verse? Do you get the irony there? These are the chief priests and the teachers of the law, many of whom would have had the entire Psalms memorized, the, the, much of the Old Testament. And Jesus just plays dumb. Oh, yeah, have you guys ever read that verse? Out of the lips of infants you've ordained praise. Do you see how he's shifting? He's taking the experts and saying, you're not an expert in the law. These kids are. They're the ones that are realizing it. He's reordering the power structures. And see, that's what you've got to see on that day. People have longed for a king for years. The chief priests and religious leaders have longed for a king to come for years. They've waited for the Messiah. They've read these passages with hope that change would come. And here he comes, and right away it's not what many of them had signed up for. Right away he confronts what they want with who he is. And that's the point for us today. You know, we all have things we want Jesus to fix. We all have problems. We all have a situation and we're saying, Hosanna, save me now. And the king comes into our life and he doesn't do what we thought he was going to do. How do we react when he shows up? How do we react when there's a new king in town? When he does come to us, how do we respond it's not just Jerusalem that gets a new king. He rides right into our lives and often at first, and I think most of us, welcome him. Thank you for coming, for being. Well, and I'm not just talking about the point of salvation. I'm talking about when you pray and you say, God, you've got to do something in this crisis that's happening to me. And we want him to come and to fix it. Please, come, come, come. And, and then all of a sudden we get some kind of insight. And we're like, yes, and then it just doesn't go where we thought it was going to go. You see, when the king comes to us, one of the things we have to realize is that he works inward out, not outward in. When Jesus comes to us, he starts with us. He works in our own heart. He he looks at my bucket and says, Jeff, you're an idiot. He doesn't say that. But he says, the issue is not that Naya can't keep the balls coming fast enough. The issue is that the bucket's got a hole in it. I want to fix the bucket. And we look at our life and we say, the problem's out there. This person's causing me this miserable time. And he says, that's not the problem. It's not fun. But the issue is, is I want to work on you. I want to to shape you to be a person that responds to that in a totally different way. See, David gets that he starts with us. In his Psalm of Confession, which we sang part of today, Psalm 51, he says, Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit for me, restore to me the joy of your salvation, then grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then, he says, then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. See, we like to reverse that. God, show up, let me teach those sinners and transgressors your ways. And once I've got that settled, you can start working on me. That's not the way the king, that's not the way the king comes. We would much rather fixate the problem on them. One of my favorite (coughs) basketball coach quotes, a college coach years ago, and he said, it's not whether you win or lose. It's where you place the blame. (laughs) And I thought that's a great one, right? Because we want to place the blame somewhere out there. We always want it. It's their fault. And for the Jews, it's the Romans are the problem. And Jesus says the problem's way deeper than the Romans. You know, we like blame out there because it frees us to not look at what's going on in our own life. How many of you have ever listened to a sermon for someone else? (laughs) If only they were there today, right? I I give sermons. I mean, I do that for me too. I'm like, wow, I hope they can hear this. And then God says, well, what about you, buddy, right? We have these wonderful plans that could fix the problem out there. It's human nature. That's why Jesus would say, you know, hey, guys, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? Pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly. Like, do you get the image? Do you remember years ago I did a sermon on this, and we had a big beam up here. And, I mean, the idea is the other person's got this tiny speck in your eye, and you've got a beam sticking out like eight feet. And you're saying, let me just help you with that, right? And you're, boom, boom, you're knocking them all over with the beam in your own eye. People heard that. They must have laughed. Yeah, wouldn't that be funny if somebody did that? They had a beam in their eye they're trying to, that's human nature. That's what we do. Solzhenitsyn in the Gulag Archipelago said, if only it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line that divides good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who's willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? You see, That's what Jesus is saying. It's not they're the problem. It's it's wrapped up in who you are. And I've come not just to make your life easier, but to actually make you new. To rebuild. When the king comes, he starts with us. He turns over our table. And the reality is that the only way we can ever be of benefit to the world is if we allow him to start in our own heart. Let me me give you a good clue. You know, I like to try to be practical occasionally in my sermon. Here's here's two words. If you hear these in your own statement, I want you to, to catch yourself. If you say, if only, a lot, those two words, if only they would be nice to me, if only I didn't have to work with them, if only they understood what I was going through. When you hear yourself say, if only, I want you to catch yourself just for a moment and say, okay. What that's doing is I'm, I'm, I'm locating the whole problem out there somewhere. And maybe I need to say to myself, God, what, what, what in this if-only situation, maybe this person is, maybe your life would be better if you weren't working with them. I'm not denying that. But, but what if God has brought this person into your workplace to do something in you? And you're saying, if only they would just find another job, my life would be so much better. And God's saying, if only you would look into your own heart. <laughs> You might see what I'm trying to show you. When you hear yourself say, if only, catch yourself and say, God, what are you trying to show me? See, that's the way the king wants to work. As he comes, we have to remember, we are subjects, not consultants, okay? Um, I think of the disciples who wanted to sit on the left and the right. You know, we hear that story, we laugh, you guys, we're just, they wanted to be a part of it. They wanted to be consultants. Jesus, we want to have some positions of power. We've got some ideas, and we think we can help out. And yet what Jesus is doing is saying, follow me. He's calling subjects, royal subjects, who surrender to the leadership of the king. If you think you've got life figured out well enough to be a consultant, Lent is what you really need. You need to take a long look at your own failures. In Isaiah 40, 13, He says, who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? We don't have what it takes to be God's consultant in what will make life better. I wish we did. I wish I wish I did. I wish, but we don't. We can't even understand what he's up to most of the time. So we need to stop trying to be a consultant and start being a subject. You know that story, there's a little story in the Bible you may have heard of of a guy named Job. Anybody got questions about why that story happened? Anybody can't figure out why, what was God doing there? And you know what frustrates you about Job is you read the whole book. The first time you read it, you think, at the end, it's going to say why. And it never really does, does it? Job kind of says at the end, why at the end, he says in Job 42, um, I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you will answer me. And Job says to God, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. That's not a very, it doesn't resolve things for me. What I see is that Job knows God in a very different way than he did at the beginning of the book. But I still don't understand why God let him go through that. I don't understand why it all played out the way it did. And that's, that's because I'm not a consultant. See, God's not trying to help us understand why everything is the way it is. He's trying to remake us. He's trying to shape us. Job sees God as the king at the end of the book and himself as his royal subject. And and he realizes something about God. There's a beauty in that, even though he doesn't understand. It's an important place to come to. There's, There's a great spiritual truth that we learn as we let God be king is that salvation and surrender go together. I'm not saying that surrender earns your salvation. I'm not saying you've got to Lay it all down, because we we never lay it all down. We 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 do that. Salvation is a gift, but part of experiencing salvation comes with surrender as its partner. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 16, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. We're we're called to follow, to surrender, to be a subject. And the beauty of that is he, he wants to deal with our issues. He wants to bring meaning and purpose. He wants to change our life in a way that is better for us. The problem is we just don't even know what that looks like. So first of all, if you ever try to convince a kid that they're wrong on something? Right? No, you're wrong. No, I'm right. I used to be that kid. I was that kid. And, and the first thing is you have to convince the kid that maybe they could be wrong before they'll even start to entertain the idea that you might be right. And we, we're this kid that we think we know exactly what we need. And sometimes it just takes a while for us to realize we don't really know what we need. So maybe what God's giving me is actually what I need, even though I don't understand that. He wants us to be truly free. He wants to set us free from what we think we need. And that's the beauty of the fact that he is a king. He's the only one wise enough to actually understand what it is we need. He's the only one that understands the full intention we were created for. So what do we do? We start by realizing who we are that's the whole Lent week, six or seven weeks of Lent, that's the whole process to admit that we're needy because once we, we, we realize that once we can say you're the king and I'm not and, and, and Hosanna I want you to save me now and I don't really get how that looks but I'm, I'm asking you to do it to make this thing work in a way that's good for me when we we remember that we are the person who needs, we also remember that this king is the guy who last week said, blessed are the poor in spirit. You, You don't have anything? Exactly. So exciting. Now I can actually begin to work in you. Now I can actually begin to do things because you're realizing that you don't have it all figured out. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, most of the time we can convince ourselves that we would be a pretty good God consultant. We have good ideas for him. But there are those moments when we come face to face with him turning over a table in our life, him exposing a hole in our bucket, whatever it is. And we say, I just can't do this. And when we say that, there's this voice from heaven that says, okay, thank you. Now let me become the king here and not a partner. And and the king, he rides into our life on a donkey, or maybe two, who knows, and he says, you know what, Jeff, you have nothing to offer me, but I love you, I'll give my life for you, and and if you're willing to follow, I will lead you to where you deeply desire to go and don't even realize that's what you deeply desire. I will put things together for you that you can't even envision, because I know you, but you have to follow me. And we're going my way because I'm the king. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. God, we, we beg you to come and act in our lives. And I just pray that we could also have the humility to welcome you to act the way you want to act and not the way we think you should. Patch up the holes in our buckets and, and help us to see that even when we don't understand what you're doing we're safe within your kingdom that you are a king who leads us down places that we're not sure we want to go but who loves us who knows us better than we know ourselves and even as Laverne prayed at the beginning we as as you ask us to lay down things and we just can't believe that's what we're having to lay down that's what we're just help us to rest in the fact that you are the king that you know best whatever it is you've called us today to surrender to you. Whatever table it is you're overturning in our lives, help us to to trust that you will never leave us or forsake us, that you never fail in your rebuilding of who we are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. (laughs) Sorry about that. There are moments, I think you all have them, do you have moments in your life that you'll never, there's a picture in your head of that moment, you'll never forget it. Some are good, some are bad, but we have, everybody have those? I was a little kid. I don't even know how old. And my dad was teaching me how to swim, which is kind of funny because I'm not a great swimmer. Uh, I sink like a rock. Um, but I remember being a little kid standing on the edge of, of the six-foot deep water, and my dad was in the pool there. And we had worked about swimming, but my dad knew me well enough to know I was just going to have to jump in. And so I remember I, I can still see it. He's there in the water. I mean, I, I could have I hit his face with my knee. I was so close. I was terrified to jump in. Because what if, what if I sunk, what if, and of course he's saying, Jeff, it's six, I'm I'm taller than the water, I'm going to catch you. It's silly now when I think about it, but I think about that struggle that I went through, just all those mental barriers that I put up to jumping in and just trusting that he would catch me. And I think God does that to us. He says, you know what, just jump. I know it doesn't look like you thought it was going to look. I know it, it you know, I'm, I'm working on things that you weren't expecting me to work on. I'm, I'm leaving things that you thought I would fix for sure. But what I want you to do is to jump. I want to be the one that catches you. I want to be the king. And, and that's where you begin to realize those, you know, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. When all of a sudden situations don't have to get fixed for you to be at peace with God, there's a freedom in that that enables you to live anywhere at any time if you're willing to jump and trust. That's when the king comes to your life this week. I want you to envision him, instead of walking down a road, I want you to envision him walking across the pool. And he's saying to you, jump, jump, I'll take care of it. You, you'll be okay. And to rest in that. That's my prayer for you this week. Amen.